Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Dr. Michael Crane is the director of the World Trade Center Health Program at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Dr. Crane leads a team of medical professionals who treat the thousands of men and women who risk their lives to help victims of the 9-11 disaster on the Twin Towers that cost 2,996 people their lives. Now, these first responders are in desperate need of medical help themselves because they are critically ill and in some cases are dying of cancer and other terrible diseases from breathing in the toxic chemicals they endured during their rescue operations at the center. Fifteen years after the attack on American soil, congressional leaders still debate whether to allot the necessary funds to treat those first responders. Even though every one of the country's 435 congressional districts has at least one person who needs some kind of medical help. Dr. Crane, you were there when the Twin Towers fell, and perhaps you can describe what you saw on that terrible day. Yes, and, and thank you for having me. Um, uh, 9-11 of 2001, I was uh, actually medical director for Con Edison in New York City, and I was driving in uh, on that day from Queens. Um, it was one of the most beautiful days I'd ever seen, the beautiful, beautiful, clear blue sky, crystalline sky. And uh, coming in on the Long Isle Expressway and <clears throat> heading over the viaduct to the, uh, to the Midtown Tunnel. And the traffic was slowing down, and, but it's typical in New York that tra- traffic slows down. And then uh, just on the way on, uh, up over the uh, – almost over to the river, uh, but not quite there, the, uh, everything just stopped. Everything just totally halted. No traffic was moving. People were – looking around, honking their horns. They stopped honking their horns. They, uh, some folks were listening to the radio and uh, everybody had their radios on and all of a sudden people were looking quite agitated and I turned my radio on and it turns out that we are starting to announce the story about the attack. And uh, I realized things had shut down because of probably security concerns and I, I, uh, I backed my car up off the exit ramp <laughs> into Long Island City, a completely illegal maneuver, but I, I did it anyway, and I managed to work my way over to a uh, Con Edison building near the river uh, on the on the Queens side. What were you thinking during all this time? I didn't know what to think. Uh, I it's It was beyond me that something like this was happening. And, uh, what I, could you see? I, well, I, I couldn't see anything until I really got to the building, and then people were actually talking to people in the building, in the, into the World Trade Center Tower, many of them being evacuated, which was, you know, a, a great thing. But uh, um, after a little while, the communications kind of went down and we, we uh, a bunch of us went up to the upper floors of the building. We were trying to look down the, down the river uh, at the towers. And shortly after we got up there, uh, I guess the second – the second tower fell. It seemed to kind of implode in fire and then fall to the ground. And it was, it was a really striking and awful sight. I knew that people had to be, you know, being killed by that. And uh, I prayed at that moment that I would uh, be allowed to help 
anyone who was hurt by that. Um, a prayer. A, a prayer. A what prayer. kind of prayer? It's the prayer to my, to the God I grew up knowing, the God of love, the Irish Catholic God from the Catholic Church. And uh, one thing I had forgotten is that we were always taught that God collects his chits. So <laughs> here I am. Uh, all these years later, I've, I've stayed with it. And uh, it's been the best work of my life to help these people. What kind of people are they? They're the salt of the earth. They're marvelous, uh, brave, understated people, police officers and firefighters and construction guys and people from the community who just literally raced in there to help and people came to clean up and uh, volunteers and people from every state in the union who came because of all this terrible thing that had happened to America and because they wanted to help other human beings. And it's... uh, they're a terrific group of people, and uh, it's um, it's an honor, an honor, a uh, privilege uh, to work for them every day. Those are the kind of people who think about other people in a day, especially now. People more think about how much money they're going to make as opposed to that group. Well, these folks didn't think anything about anything, and they just went to help. They ran forward into danger. I mean, it was hell down there. It was truly a descent into hell with the smoke and the fires and the burning and the, the collapsed buildings and the buildings that were threatening to collapse. And uh, the folks who went running down there are just uh, were just so unselfish and put themselves at huge risk. I mean, they, the, the towers had come down and there was a huge pile of debris, but the debris was unsteady. It was over another uh, excavation, essentially. And uh, trying to look for people and rescue them, they were exposing themselves to smoke and fire. If, if you move something, the fire would shoot up from below the floors because the, the thing was a flame. Um, so they were literally risking their lives to do what they did. And they just went at it. All those cops and all those firemen and all those folks from the community and all those folks who just volunteered to help out. It was really remarkable what they did. I mean, they did put themselves in danger. There's no question about it. Um, but and they, for a long time, it seemed that the city was not recognized the fact that the people got cancer, you know, contracted well, terrible I, I, diseases. Yeah, from. I mean, I guess the uh, I guess the the exposure was pretty substantial down there. I mean, there was jet fuel and benzene and burning plastics and burning metals and uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and you know, dioxins, every kind of god awful combination. And when that collapse happened when that dust cloud came, that the collapse of that building, that let all kinds of stuff into the air and kind of turned the sky black and a tremendous amount of particles in it. And to this day, we don't know what was in that cloud. We know about the stuff that settled to the ground because what we did is, or some of our folks went out and literally took little cups and scooped the stuff and ran it off the lab to the test it, but that was three or four days later. And the actual content of that cloud is never going to be known. And lots of people were there breathing that stuff, trying to get themselves out. Other folks trying to get themselves in so they could help help their colleagues, look for their lost family, look for their lost friends. Um, it was really a, an uncontrolled exposure to that population. And so um, it's so important to monitor them. You know, I come from the occupational health field. And uh, one of the things we try and do is when we have workers who are exposed to toxins, uh, we try to protect them from them. And normally our work is in a relatively controlled space. There's a spill of some chemical. We at least know the name of the chemical, what it is. And when people go in, we know how to protect them at least a little bit, you know, with proper protective clothes and breathing apparatus. 
We didn't know anything about this cloud. We knew it was bad, and we didn't have time to get down there and really provide what the folks needed. Um, so the rule in occupational health is when you have an unknown exposure, you do maximum protection. So that would have literally meant moon sifts and breathing apparatus for these folks, and it just wasn't there, and they went in anyway. And when you have that kind of uncontrolled exposure, you really have to do the maximum to watch out for the population that's been exposed. You just don't know what's going to happen, and we still don't. You can see all those visible scars on people, but then there are the other scars you don't see, the scars on the doctors who treat these people. Scars on you, for example. Well, I mean, lots of us, uh, you know, lost people down there, and um, lots of us uh, were, you know, saw our kids terrified. My son didn't want to go ride in a plane for years, um, and lots of other people like that. Um, we know that the folks who down are who are down there now have had terrible post-traumatic stress, quite akin to the the episodes that occurred to the the young veterans who are coming back from Afghanistan. Um, and also these terrible medical illnesses. And they, they run together. They don't have just one illness. They have five illnesses. So they have asthma and they have sinusitis and they have gastroesophageal reflux and they, they have maybe some musculoskeletal thing. Plus, they have post-traumatic stress. So these folks come in sometimes with their pill count and just say, I want to remind you what I'm taking, doc. And, you know, it's 15 medications. Uh, so it, it's really a huge burden of illness of this folk, on these folks, and that's why that's why we needed this program because these folks have been exposed to a lot. They have gotten really sick. Um, now we think that cancers are beginning to catch up with them. Now at this time, about 15 years later, um, and we're seeing that start to happen. So it's a huge, huge burden on this responding population of really brave and very, really ordinary people who want their ordinary lives back. And you lose some of them, don't you? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, it's very difficult. They're like family. Uh, you get to know them. We've been doing this now for since 2002, and um, we've come to love and admire these folks. And they need you. And, and yes, they need us. Until the very end. Our guest this time on Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 FN and WBGO.org is Dr. Michael Crane. He's a director of the World Trade Center Health Program at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City that treats some of the thousands of men and women first responders who risked their lives to help the victims of 9-11 and many of their friends and relatives. And seems like it's just never-ending, isn't it? It does. I mean, now we have the, uh, the folks in the community um, who are, uh, I think, beginning to understand a little bit more about the extent of their exposure. Um, Why can't you convince Congress, and I should bring this up, there's something called the James Zadroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act, which is named after a police a detective, New York City police detective from North Arlington, New Jersey, who died after spending oh, hundreds of hours at the Trade Center. And people didn't believe that he really had died from what he was doing to help all those folks. Well, I mean, the Officer Jajoka is one of the heroes. Uh, there's no question about it. And there have been now many, many others, uh, sadly, following him. Um, Why can't you convince Congress every once in a while? We're all talking about it. You know, hey, these people need money. Why can't you give them some? Do you ever think about how you, how do you talk to them? So uh, we, we tend to, 
to hope that Congress will once again reauthorize the act. Um, each time. Each time. Zadroga has been in, in operation, the Zadroga Act, I should say, has been in operation since July of 2011. It's a really, really well-crafted law. A lot of thought went into it. Um, it allows for very good cost controls and, and uh, uh, the ability to monitor and to treat these responders. I don't think there's been a debate about whether the law is any good. It just seems they're, they're arguing about nickels and dimes. And now that's considering the size of the budget. Yeah, I, I think the main uh, sticking point right now is whether, um, whether to make the law permanent or not or whether to leave it to a, a number of years like we've had. We're hoping for permanency because our concern is, you know, our population is just going to get sicker. Um, and what we've seen now just recently in the past few weeks and months is a lot of anxiety in the population that we treat about, hey, is this going away? Are you guys going to be here? You know, how, how am I going to get treated? I'm just wondering whether people think it's only a New York City problem because it happened here. Right. Even though it's obviously a national problem. Is, is that because – I'm not pick on you. <laughs> but is that because you're just not getting out there enough and, and you guys are not telling your story like you're doing right now? Well, I, you know, I think what we do is we, we do lots of outreach and lots of websites and lots of advertising. And, you know, I, I think these are the kind of folks, these are very, very brave people. And when I said before, they want their ordinary lives back. They don't really want this. They want they know they're heroes and that's great, but they really want to get back to the way it was if they can get there. And some won't even take treatment because they say the other guy needs it more than we do. That's what they say. They say, Look, Doc, you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm a great program and all that stuff, but you know what? I don't need it and those other guys need it much more than I do, and I want the money to be left for them. It's really unselfish, but I tell them, Hey, we need you too. Uh, because you know, if you have a, an exposure like that, like I mentioned before, where you don't know what was in the air, you're not going to know the impact unless you see literally almost every single person who was exposed. The ordinary person has so much power if only they knew it. The ordinary person has a great deal of power and we hope that they know it, yes. Absolutely. You just didn't come to this naturally, right? There was a, a beginning, a middle, and now <laughs> yes. the rest of your life. So yes. give us, tell us a little bit about Dr. Michael Crane. So I was, uh, I was born in Brooklyn. Um, I now live in Queens, so I've come far in life. Uh, <laughs> Moved to the suburbs. Sort of. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. Um, my family is uh, Irish Catholic. Um, parochial school. Parochial school, uh, Holy Cross High School in Flushing, Queens. Uh, I then went off to Yale University. I went back to the, my counselors, the brothers, and I said, you know, I got into Yale, and they said, you're going to lose your soul. And I said, well, I mean, I was 18 or 17. I said, wow, that sounds kind of not too bad, you know. And that's not really the story. But I thought it was a, a, a kind of a great place to go, and I'm really glad I did go there. Um, I learned a lot about, about uh, life in the world and living and science. And while I was there, I was playing tennis, and I uh, broke my foot and I then got better because of some orthopedists. And all of a sudden, being an economist and a rich guy didn't look so good or so important. So I little fell, literally fell into my career. <laughs> when I think about Absolutely, it that way. Absolutely, right. Yeah. Uh, I took off to medical school at the University of Rochester. I, I thought I was going to be some kind of like world health guy or tropical medicine guy. 
And when we put ourselves into the lottery for you know where we we're going to go to uh, for our residencies, you know our postgraduate training, I wound up in the Bronx. So I sort of overseas, <laughs> East River is it's across the river, across the yeah. East River. Yeah, <laughs> but the training was great. Um, I'm glad I did it. And while I was there, once again, I literally stumbled into another career, which is occupational environmental medicine. I read a book by Dr. Selikoff, who was... Irving Selikoff. Irving Selikoff. Yeah. A man who fought until his dying day to apprise people of things like asbestos dangers. Exactly right. He was a, a pioneer of all that research and a really fantastic person. Um, his book knocked me out, <laughs> to put it mildly. And all of a sudden, it, it, I began to think that maybe a good thing I could do uh, while I was knocking around at a couple of jobs, like at the Bellevue ER and a couple other places... Um, is to maybe have a situation where I could help ordinary people who went to work come home in the same shape they went or maybe even better. So uh, preventing accidents, preventing injury uh, had a lot of appeal for me. And Did I, that prepare you in any way for for what you've been doing for the last 12, 15 years? Uh, well, that's a great question. You know, usually occupational medicine, you see pretty healthy people and they do okay and they – have their careers, and if you keep them from their accidents and stuff, they do all right. Um, World Trade Center is differ different from that. We have a lot of really healthy people who now aren't doing quite as good and are of chronic illnesses and need a lot of medications, as I mentioned before, and have a lot of mental health issues. And I come in, I, I'm trying to visualize you sitting there. You look very relaxed. <laughs> people don't see you have these nice glasses on and a tie and a, <laughs> kind of a nice, nice jacket and shirt and and they come and they see you and they need to and they're looking for someone to calm them down because they're afraid, right? Yeah. And you have to calm them down meanwhile you're trying to calm yourself down. Yeah. And what kind of what kind of conversations do you have with them? Um at this point I'm so fond of them as a group that I'll just go up and I'll grab them by the arm, grab them by the hand, say, come on in, sit down, let's talk. And uh, we talk. And about uh, what? about what's going on with them. Their lives. Their lives. Uh, we talk about their illness and how they're doing. Um, we gradually get around to the medical stuff, you know, uh, how many how many of this you're taking, how many times you're coughing at night, uh, you know, can you walk up a flight of stairs still, and all those questions that we doctors have to ask. But for me, the best part of it is looking at these folks um, during and after the course of our visit and realizing that we are actually helping them um, get through this, to get through these days. Where psychologically they as Psychologically well as, and physically as well. There's um, ways of post-traumatic post stress huge syndrome. Huge post-traumatic stress. What um, is it like? What are they? It's terrible. I mean, it's, 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 it, is, it is just the devil of the earth. Um, it's an anxiety disorder, so people are anxious. They have these incredibly awful recollections, flashbacks. Uh, while to, the, awake, to that day. To that day and what, to what they were doing, seeing body parts. Then they have the same thing at night in the form of a nightmare where it comes back to them. Um, they tend to withdraw from their families because they literally physically can't stand to be around people. Um, Do you treat their families? We don't actually treat family members. Uh, we're happy to counsel family members, but we can't you know, prescribe for them and I'm such. thinking of uh, syndrome like su um, survivors of suicide, things like that. Yes. I mean we, we can refer folks to all types of support groups and we have support groups coming in. Do they take um, their own lives in some situations? 
Unhappily, yes, they do. Um, that is the worst of all things um, for all of us. Um, and it is the worst moment that many of us have when we hear about that. Fortunately, it's, at least what we know, it's been relatively rare. Um, but it's something that we worry about all the time. So it's a terrible loss. It's a terrible loss. These people are wonderful people, and we spend a lot of time convincing them how important they are and what, how important they are and what they mean to us and what they mean to their families. Our guest this time on Conversation with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 FN and WBGO.org is Dr. Michael Crane. He's a director of the World Trade Center Health Program at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. I went to a high school down there called Stuyvesant right. <laughs> a long, long time ago. Right, right. And people were telling a lot of the people, a lot of the parents of that school, which is only three blocks from the World Trade Center, there was nothing to worry about. Mm. But there was, and there still is. And those are the young ones, the, the students. How are they doing? So um, in our program, we don't have too many of the folks who were students or members of the community. That's a separate program from ours down at Bellevue. Um, I can tell you that... Um, the last time I went to Congress, um, there was a young woman who came and walked the halls with us who was a Stuyvesant alum, like yourself, really, really wonderful young lady, uh, concerned about some issues that she was having and some things she had heard from her classmates. And um, using that social media that we were talking about before to communicate with that group and hopefully bring them into the community treatment program that's now now beginning to grow uh, down at, at Bellevue and the other city centers. Um, I understand from those doctors that there's also an increase in the number of the patients coming in from the community with cancer. Um, and we don't know really that anything about numbers yet, but it's an ongoing concern. And I'm, I'm hoping that the people will come and take advantage of our programs and uh, of the screening for cancer we can give them, for colon cancer, for lung cancer, for mammography, um, and uh, so we can help prevent and detect early what might be happening with them. Do you take this stuff home with you? I do take it home with me, yes. Um, I usually don't um, dream on it. Um, I do a lot of exercising, um, and that's one way to kind of like put stuff in perspective. Um, what kind of exercise? Oh, I jog, you know. No, I don't know. I don't jog. <laughs> <laughs> I jog and I play a little tennis very badly um, and I swim a little bit. But it, it's, uh, that helps. Uh, that helps put things in perspectives. Um, when I hear them say, you know, I can't walk up a flight of stairs now and I used to run three miles in so-and-so minutes, I know what that feels like and I know what they've lost. Your wife, what do you tell her? What does she do for a living? She's an attorney. Uh, she's a very patient and fine person. She puts up with me and has put up with me for 32 years. Long time. <laughs> yes. Yes, by anybody's calendar, I think it's a long time. The stories get to her? Uh, yes, they get to all of us. Um, and uh, I have two great kids who really are a source of propping me up all the time. Uh, now, just imagine you're coming home from, uh, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day at at the at your center, and then and you have to deal with someone who died, or someone may die, or someone you have to treat, and you hope they won't die. 
I can't imagine what that's like. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, it's, I think people out there don't know. I think it's difficult to be a um, a, a, a doctor who takes care of chronically ill patients. Um, it's a calling, and uh, I'm glad to say I have been called to it. Um, there are moments of tremendous sorrow, moments of tremendous joy, um, but I feel so privileged to do what I do. I, I can't tell you. I, it, it's absolutely a joy to work for these people. Give us an example of the joy. Uh, the other day, um, a guy came in, and he, was, uh, he had had terrible injuries, and he had pulled himself together enough uh, that he was going to move out to California. And this is a big deal for him and a really big change. And the only thing he said to me, you know, I'm only going to do one thing. I'm going to come one here once a year and see you and that's it. <laughs> so I figure, all right, I guess you're well enough to go if you're feeling that way. Um, but there's other things where people – How old was he? 50-ish, 50-ish. There's other things where was people – Was he a cop, a fireman? What? No, he was a, a, ordinary. You know, an ordinary guy, construction type guy. We have other things where folks have you know, been out of work for a long time and then kind of put themselves through school and then gotten a new job or a new certificate. You know? And all of these things are cause for celebration uh, because these folks are they're, – they're just marvelous. The salt of the earth I think is the phrase. You were in Washington and you went to one of these committee meetings. Uh, they always have them and they have them on television and they prop. And What would you tell these people about why it is so necessary – to fund your programs in all the various hospitals and, I, and around the country, around everywhere. There's so many people working on this. What do they need to know? This is a good chance for you. What do you think? I think they – actually, they do know that this Droga Act takes care of real American heroes who gave of themselves unselfishly, uh, put themselves on the line for this country on a, during an attack on the United States of America. Uh, they didn't think of themselves. They ran in to help others. Uh, and now because of that, they got sick. And we can't, we can't turn our backs on them. We can't do that. That's not America. America is extending that helping hand to these heroes. Forever. It will be self-limited. I mean, it's, it's a limited population of folks who are, whose average age is in their, in their 50s now. So it's not going to go on forever. It's going to go on for you know, another generation or two, and then we'll all pass on. And their children will appreciate it. And their children will appreciate it. And everyone who went there uh, will, will be reassured and relieved of the anxiety that is now afflicting them. The problem, I think, of, uh, of letting people know about how desperate medical personnel are, because they don't have the time to do anything else except take care of the people that they're taking care of. And why do you think that there are so many people out there who are not paying attention to the medical professionals like you? Well, I, I think when people do catch wind of what's going on, they become very, very interested and, and actually very, very supportive. And that's what we've seen really across, really across the country in Washington and everywhere. It's just making sure people understand what this is all about. Um, what's the key, key phrase to get them going, to stop them in their tracks? American heroes suffering and dying. And that's what we have now, American heroes who are suffering and dying for their unselfish acts uh, during those weeks and months after the 9-11 attack. Dr. Crane, thank you. Thank you for having me. For all you're going to do to treat these men and women, responders, and everybody else who's been affected by the World Trade Center disaster. Hopefully, this program tonight 
will reach the ears of the Washington permanent establishment and help them understand just how important it is to have a permanent set of money, little, little pieces of nickels and dimes to help you continue your wonderful research. Thank you so much. Joanna Wolp is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is the executive producer. Conrad Saguinetti is our engineer. If you'd like to listen to any of our long list of autobiographies, just click Conversations with Alan Wolper. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.